Well, welcome back. I am glad to be with you here, my wonderful church, Sunnybank. We're uh, going back into the book of Nehemiah in chapter 12 this time. We've got one more chapter after that, and then we've finished that book and the last part of the narrative of the Old Testament. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into God's Word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your Word, and we pray that you open it to our hearts and open our hearts to what you have to say to us. We pray that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are now back in Nehemiah chapter 12, the second to last chapter, the last high point in the Bible, uh, in the Bible's narrative, the last high kind of emotional point, the last fun thing that seems to happen um, before the birth of Jesus. And as of this recording, by the way, I've had no official responses to chapter 10's tongue twister challenge. Uh, so for fans of long strings of barely pronounceable names, get to it. You still have a chance to get into that competition. But... Uh, for those of you who are fans of long strings of unpronounceable names, we have a special treat for you because verses 1 to 26 are, in fact, a long string of barely pronounceable names. And I won't run through them now uh, in detail like I did a couple of weeks ago. The same names that you've seen in chapter 12 and chapter 10 and most of the way through Nehemiah, um, the same long string of unpronounceable names. You could go as far as even to say that the repetition of these names, and particularly here as we get to the end of the book, is one of the purposes of the book of Nehemiah, it's to immortalize in the history of Israel, within their scriptures, the names of the families and individuals who were obedient to God, who were faithful to the call to return to the promised land, to rebuild the wall and the temple, to sacrifice, to breathe life back into the old covenant, which God uh, had restarted in this way with the movement of Nehemiah and Ezra back to the land in which God was saying to his people, once again, if you hear my voice and obey, then you will be my people and I will be your God. And verses 1 to 26 is specifically the names of those priests and Levites uh, of the various temple workers who came back to Israel over various stages in this re repatriation process. And this is important because they're about to put those priests and Levites through purification and set them up to work in the temple. Just as when the first temple was built, they purified those priests and established them in the temple there. The second temple has been built now, and they are purifying these priests and Levites and setting them to work there. They want to honor those who have been obedient, and they also want to set up a challenge to anyone who might come later uh, and claim to be part of the, the Levite tribe to claim some ancient ancestry and therefore the, the uh, privilege and honor um, of being in the Levite tribe. Uh, and it prevents that um, someone who might show up later on to just claim that without any kind of challenge and therefore the honor of what it means to have been there with a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other rebuilding the walls of Israel and the temple itself while the enemy was waiting to attack. And so the other Levites uh, would trickle back into the kingdom later. Uh, they'll have to prove that they're related to these families. They can't just say, oh, I'm related to Aaron uh, a thousand years ago. Just believe me. Uh, so verses 1 to 26 have a purpose as kind of an honor roll, uh, giving glory to those who obeyed God and acted rightly in a time of trial. And as an official roster of the priestly families who were now representing the tribe of Levi that's been pruned down to this much smaller scale. Uh, like the Israelites themselves have been pruned down to a much smaller scale, uh, going from their total of uh, 11 other tribes, ultimately down to the tribe of Judah and then a fraction of the tribe of Benjamin and into the group of people we called the Jews from that point on. Now we live in an age where the covenant of God with his people uh, today reflects on all of God's people. 
Uh, we believe in what we call the priesthood of all believers. If you're in that covenant of God, then you are given that priestly mantle and therefore the responsibilities that come with it. It's not tied to bloodlines and the only vetting process for who is or who isn't a true believer is witnessing their actions and using your best judgment to determine if they are living the creed they say they are living. But then again, claiming to be Christian doesn't really come with any special earthly accolade either. Now there's kind of a trade-off there maybe. No one can congratulate you on being an especially good or obedient uh, Christian because really the only thing it reveals about you to have become a Christian is that you are so aware of your own shortcomings and failures that you have given up on trying to fix yourself. That's maybe not something itself that's worth reward. So in that sense, our priesthood of believers isn't an honor roll like this one is. Uh, it's a list, <laughs> our list is a list of those who have been shamefully sinful, uh, but humbly sufficiently accepted into God's grace. But all the same, God does keep a role for us. The book of life, the Bible calls it, the book of the living, shows up in Psalms and Isaiah and Revelation as a reminder that God's people are known to him and that he will call them by name and one day he will call them home. And they'll be called not according to their striving to be righteous, but by his grace and the sacrifice that makes them righteous, sacrifice of his son. These priests are in the book of Nehemiah because of their obedience to God, but we're in the book of life because of our surrender to God. That's a trade-off in our favor, I think. But next we come to the beginning of the text from our reading today. And from here to the end of the chapter, we have a record of this celebration, uh, rejoicing and dedication that's happening, uh, particularly around the walls, the rebuilt walls of Israel, and then later the, the second temple. And they begin again the life of God's people in this land, seeking God's will in a city he has blessed. And that begins with this purification. First of the Levites and the priests, and then of the people of Israel, and then of the gates and the walls of the city. They begin by rustling up all of the Levites in the area, and particularly their musicians, who it says in the, in the text had formed a kind of a, like a subclass of Levites that had made their own town specifically. Um, probably because they felt it was proper to live in proximity to each other, uh, to hone their craft. I kind of like the idea that Jerusalem was surrounded by all these little Levite jam towns where everyone plays the harp or everyone plays one kind of drum. Uh, but we don't know exactly how that worked. Maybe they were intermingled. Maybe they were uh, fixed up in, in villages according to band. Um, either way, they round up the Levites and priests because they're purifying the whole city and the purification must begin with those at the top of that purity chain. Verse 30 says, When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Now what does it mean to say that they were purified? Well, there's a bunch of purification rituals described in the book of Moses, in the various books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, usually for specific things like how to deal with uh, having touched a dead body, what purification is required after that, how do you deal with having some kind of skin disease, what purification is required after that. But there's nothing about purification for your whole nation after God has been so disgusted with you, he has allowed a foreign army to come in and demolish everything that was built and drag you off into exile for a couple of generations before you finally come back. There's no listed remedy for that. Uh, but it was probably... Um, a symbolic kind of purification as it tends to be. There was probably involved splashing with water, maybe some anointing, putting away of old clothes and putting on new clothes, things like we see described in those early books of Moses. 
stuff like that. In a sense, it doesn't matter what the symbol was directly because the purification itself is not a technical process, it's a symbol, it's a symbolic process. They're not washing off physical dirt or germs, or at least that's not the point uh, of, the, of the purification, nor are they actually washing away their sins by that ritual or some kind of spiritual failing. And this has always been true for the priesthood of Israel and its rituals, and it's worth taking a moment to remind ourselves what purification in the Bible actually is. Because the true and real problem in the world is sin and has always been sin and has always been described so in the scriptures. Sin has been the problem since Genesis chapter 3 and gets worse and worse from then onwards for quite some time. And sin is our deviation, it's our turning away from the path that God has put us on, that he's designed us for, that he calls us to walk. Uh, humans are made to live forever walking beside God, but if you imagine walking a straight line beside someone, then that's the only direction you can go and actually remain with them. If you go a little to the left or a little to the right, then you are walking away from them at some degree. And if that's your new heading, you're going to get further and further away from them the further you go down that path. And the one who was walking with you in the first place will suddenly be far away from you. That path that we start on is loyalty to God and our deviation from it and the ongoing habit that we have that to veer off that towards our own whims is the state of sin in which we live our lives. But that's a spiritual reality. It's not easy to convey and to communicate. And so God engages his people right off the bat when he begins his, begins his covenant um, with a kind of living metaphor, a metaphor for them to live in their lives of cleanness and uncleanness of purity and impurity. If you're spiritually clean, then you are aligned with God sufficiently enough to engage with Him. If you're not spiritually clean, then you need to be cleansed before you can come back into the presence of God and deal with Him in your relationship. This is much easier to understand intuitively and instinctively because we understand how clean and dirty things work. We know that unclean wounds can get infected easily, and that's bad. We know that unclean hands are not for eating with. Um, and so God has established for the Jews, uh, for the, the Hebrews at the time, a, a great deal of clean and unclean. Uh, cows, sheep, and pigeons, all these domesticated animals, uh, they are clean. All the wild animals are unclean. Touching someone's blood makes you unclean. Washing with water makes you clean again. Broadly, the picture is this. That which is towards life and towards obedience is clean. And that which is towards death and disobedience is is unclean. And this is the metaphor and the teaching picture that God is using to engage with his people throughout the story of Israel. Uh, but the problem with metaphors and teaching pictures is that they are uh, always a little bit flawed and insufficient for the whole deal. They are not, uh, if they're not carefully conveyed by the people who are meant to convey them, i.e. the priesthood, the leaders of the people, uh, the people end up regarding the symbol or the picture or the icon or the ritual, the thing that's meant to teach them something, as the thing with the power itself, a thing that we ultimately call idolatry. And therefore, once it's become that thing, that can be manipulated and, and worked around and dealt with and, and, well, ultimately regarded as if it's not the all-powerful true God with whom we're supposed to have a relationship. They forget the thing it represents and they worship the representer. And that's a vulnerability that we have as humans. Uh, 
The reason that the temple was destroyed in the first place was because the people and the priests had lost their reverence uh, for what the temple and the rituals represented, not because they weren't doing those rituals. And when a family came to sacrifice a lamb, they weren't actually appeasing, uh, weren't actually trying to appease God because God likes lamb so much or the smell of a lamb sacrifice. They were meant to be demonstrating and participating in this ritual that God had prescribed for them. But once it becomes sort of going through the motions and, and acting through a process of habit to try and keep uh, this God happy, somewhere we've gone from doing a thing in obedience to God who is sublimely above and beyond us in the universe to the religious equivalent of feeding the dog. So he stops barking. And God does not abide being treated like that. It's very much comparable to the use of idols as we see in the Old Testament, this uh, symbolic practice that ultimately is very vulnerable to corruption. God really only cracks down on idols in the Bible after Abraham is good and gone. He seems to kind of tolerate it with uh, some of the patriarchs there. And by the time you get to Moses, God is saying very clearly, no idols, no statues, no pictures of any living creature, nothing that's even close to something you could say might represent a god or god. Uh, when the Israelites set up the golden calf on their way to the promised land, God rebukes them hard. Because once you confine the idea of God to a creature or to a place, you can keep it pacified by uh, giving it food and giving it a scratch behind the ear, and you forget the symbol or forget the reality of the thing behind the symbol. And you're just playing with the symbol itself. This isn't just a uniquely Jewish uh, weakness, it's something that Christians have historically fallen prey to as well. All throughout the Middle Ages, particularly, you have. Uh, what were called relics that the church uh, would, would keep and produce and promote to pilgrims to seek, like the finger bone of St. Sebastian or a splinter of the, the true cross of Christ, um, things which were usually fakes but were pumped up uh, for their value and exciting religious fervor, uh, things that people would travel across the world to see uh, or to touch or to kiss and hope to get some kind of blessing from the physical thing. And that's a tradition that draws itself actually from Scripture. Uh, it starts way back in Acts when the disciples would give their, uh, could give their scarves away or their, or their items of clothing away. And because they'd been on a disciple uh, who had been performing miracles in Christ's name, it was as if the, the item of clothing itself sort of clung uh, to their miraculous holiness. And then that could be taken to another place and the miracle would be performed with that relic. Um, so it's something we actually see happen in Scripture. But over time, it became an obsession with the symbols and not the power behind them. And that's really a major reason why we are a Baptist church, not another kind of church. Baptists famously are very, very strict on this kind of thing. We don't go in for statues or for stained glass windows or relics or anything symbolic or ritualistic or not explicitly endorsed biblically. In fact, you can put a cross up on the wall, but... It better be an abstract cross, ideally slanting a little bit to the right, looking like it's been drawn uh, with a paintbrush. It can have a line art dove or maybe a, a picture of fire on front of it, but if I see the Savior himself represented on that cross, so help me, I will take that down off the wall. If there's a picture on the wall, it better be a landscape with a Bible verse or a portrait of Charles Spurgeon. And I don't want to see anyone dancing or clapping as if our eternally transcendent God is made especially attentive or happy uh, by you raising your hands or doing a jig. You can lift your hands to here and no further 
palms up ideally in this pose of supplication. Uh, the moment your elbow goes above your shoulder, that's just idolatry at arm's length. Let's face it, we don't go in for that kind of thing here. And in fact, let's just, let's just sit through the entire next worship song. Uh, God doesn't save us because we stand and sit at the right times. And oh, maybe the whole worship song thing is kind of a bit much. Maybe, maybe we should do away with that entirely. We're not charming a snake out of a basket. God will do what he will do, and he'll do it when he wants to. You know what? Let's just all sit down quietly and think about how pagan we've become. Now, that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but the symbols that they had and that we have, purity and music and dancing, they're all tools for engaging with God. And the ability for humans to hollow out these symbols and to make them useless or worse than useless, it's almost bottomless. And when God sent his people into exile, he took away from them their temple and their festivals and their feasting and their dancing and their purity and their priesthood and any comfort they might have had or have taken falsely in the symbols themselves rather than in the one behind the symbols. They had to learn in a land in which all the rituals and symbols and, uh, and images of God were foreign and strange, that faith first means loyalty and obedience, and that all the earthly things we do, falling to our knees, raising our hands, lifting up our voice in song, the all symbols and tools for our benefit to help us engage with a God who is so incredible and transcendent, who actually needs nothing that we have to offer. Those things that we think to give to God are God's gift to us. And in this chapter, God is giving Israel back his approval for them to worship in a way that makes them feel connected to their ancestors and connected to him because they've demonstrated already the obedience and faith that he's asked of them in coming back to the promised land and rebuilding the wall and standing in the face of those who would threaten them. And what this tells us is that our genuine relationship to God behind all the stuff we do, behind all the performance, it's the relationship is the thing that really matters. Devotion to the symbols and even the, the habits of worship, even extremely proficient uh, devotion to those has no value to God if it doesn't come out of your actual love for him and actual desire to know and serve him more. If singing in worship or prayer or reading the scriptures or performing a role in ministry has become routine for you in a way that you're not really engaged and just kind of going through the motions, that is not an insignificant problem. And you know your situation better than I do. Everyone has tired days when they're kind of off and they just sort of have to roll through things and force themselves there. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about an off day. If you've been running on empty for a long time through Christian habits, maybe you need to confront that you're in a spiritual crisis and it may be time for you to reach out. If I've described you just now, you should reach out. If you're watching this on our live stream, then you can and should hit the prayer request button and ask for someone to pray with you for renewal and restoration in your relationship with God. And if you can't hit that button, if you're watching this later, um, you can always email any of the pastors at SDBC. And if you don't feel comfortable doing that, well then I am certain that God has placed in your life someone for whom you feel 
an affinity to speak about this kind of thing, to hold that accountability. But don't suffer in silence. The Levites and the priests are purified first. And then the people are purified after that. And then the wall and its gates are purified. Now there's an obvious sort of pattern here, a direction in the purification symbol. It begins in the middle and it moves outwards. You can kind of picture almost the sort of the wave of holiness radiating out from maybe the temple center of Israel. First, the cleanness is for the priests uh, who pass it on to the people and then the wall and the boundary of the city. But with any movement, you can ask two questions. Where does it come from? And where is it going? Because the suggestion plainly is that the, the priests and the Levites, they need to get that purity from somewhere. It's very much the Jewish law that a dirty thing can't clean another dirty thing. It wouldn't make sense. It needs to be cleansed. It needs to come from somewhere pure in the first place. And it must therefore have come from God directly. So the blessing comes from God, from his purity to the priests, to his people to the walls around the city, and, well, does God's blessing and his purity stop there? Well, it's certainly the limit of the city. But God's always been a God of the nations and not just a God of the Israelites. And God's people have always been blessed to be a blessing. They're to live in such a faithful and obedient way that the nations around them are compelled and drawn into relationship with God themselves. Israel was the priesthood of the world as the temple priests were that to Israel. And so even the order of purification here, even in that there's a reminder built into the process that this blessing of purity which stands for a fidelity and relationship with God, it begins with Him, it moves through those who know Him first and must carry on beyond that. It's a vision for God's gospel to be brought to the nation's that can't really begin in earnest until the gospel is completed with Jesus Christ on the cross. But even here in the Old Testament, we see the echoes of it swelling uh, and getting ready to release with the coming of the Savior. And once the purification has ended, they move on to the second part of this uh, rededication and renewal. It's a dedication march across these newly rebuilt walls. The verses describe it as a thanksgiving, which might seem a little weird from a certain perspective, as in, thank you, Lord, for the wall that we built ourselves uh, while we protected ourselves. But really it shows their understanding of God is mature enough to know that God is a participant in anything that they are doing. He's not a pet you feed to keep happy and then keep out of the way. He's the God of the universe. And he can take away your walls and he can give them back to you. And though their labor built the walls, their success is made possible only because God had deemed that this time was the time they should return to the land and be restored as his people there. They march along the two sections of the walls they rebuilt uh, with two choirs giving thanks. If you look at the map on your screen, you can see the two arrows, one's longer than the other. Uh, and it sucks to be you if you happen to be in the choir that got the long walk, I suppose. But they don't march in a big circle. They don't circumnavigate the city. Uh, they walk across these two sections of the wall that they rebuilt, even though they're dedicating the city itself back to God. Because those walls they rebuilt maybe were most real to them. They all have blisters and calluses from those walls and from building them with their own hands. Those are the walls that stand where the rubble used to be, through which their ancestors have been dragged as they were taken off to Babylon. And so... Uh, 
a left brain engineer mind might see this Thanksgiving as maybe incomplete and partial, just doing part of the wall. A right brain sort of poet mind can see the meaning behind this and the focus. And so the purity and the, uh, and the thanksgiving are culminated ultimately in verses 40 to 43 where they begin to worship, they begin to show joy to God. The choirs take their places in the temple, the house of God, so do a, a mass of officials and priests. And verse 43 might be the best verse in the whole book and a strong contender for the best verse in the whole Old Testament. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Not just the priests or the musical Levites, not just the men in the temple interior, but also the women and children in the court of the women. Beyond that, uh, all of them rejoiced together and the sound was so loud uh, so profound, it rolled down the hill and over the land, and we must assume to the camps of the, uh, those who have objected to them before, Tobiah and Sanballat, these jealous predatory tribes in the area who wanted to see the Israel project fail. And they waited for their chance to attack them when their guard fell down or they showed that they were lazy. But that never came, and now they're safe behind the walls of their city, singing in the rebuilt temple of their God, singing their praises for the whole region to hear. Now, the Old Testament is largely the tale of God's people trying and failing to do His will into the world. But sometimes they get it right. And this is one of those times. The chapter finishes with the appointment of the gatekeepers. Uh, like the musicians who are a subgroup of Levites, the gatekeepers are another subgroup of the Levites. Uh, the, the musicians were the ones who managed the musical function for all the worship services. Uh, the gatekeepers are those who were the kind of the bankers, the warehouse managers, uh, the numbers, uh, the number crunchers, the ones who are in charge of receiving and giving up all of the, the various tithes and offerings from the people, dividing it up to the priests and the Levites, and to the maintenance of the temple and filling the, the temple stores and stocks. It was a function that uh, didn't really matter when there was no temple and nothing to put in it, but now that the wall is built and the temple is rebuilt and everyone's just been purified, the time has come. One must hope then the time has come for them to return to a new life, one which fully honors God's command for his people. Friends, this is a chapter about renewal and return. And within that, there is a picture of Israel at its best, of God's people when they are riding high with uh, their passion and devotion to the God who is leading them and they are doing it right. And there's a picture in three parts. Purification, purification as their confession, and thanksgiving as a kind of mindfulness, and, and joy as their worship itself. How can we have those things? Well, purification, we've said, was an outward symbol for a spiritual reality, and that spiritual reality is the coming back into alignment with God. It's what we call confession. And when we're doing our relationship with God right, we are remembering to take time to confess. Both of those specific sins of which we are convicted and, uh, and knowing that ultimately there's probably other sins in our lives where God will lead us to and that we can confess those to the Lord as well and trust that He ultimately has paid the price for all of them. The Israelites used a visible display of washing to illustrate and symbolize purification when they did it. 
And today some denominations do something like that themselves. Uh, some use holy water as they go into worship for the same reason, to remind them that they are to be made purified and clean as they come into the presence of God. Now, like we said before, we don't go in for symbols uh, like that when we don't have to. But if, to, if there's something, some little uh, habit or gesture to go back to that helps you focus yourself on confession, that makes it kind of more real for you, and not just a, a thing you are rolling through as a habit, then do it. For me, uh, particularly when it's communion and I'm trying to call to mind anything I need to give up to God before I take the bread, I somehow formed the habit of taking in a deep breath and leaving it out and, uh, and letting it out after as if I'm physically expelling the, uh, the vapor of sin from my lungs or something. I don't know why I do it. Uh, it's part of a personal ritual that seems to embody the spiritual purification that is in confession for me. And there's worse habits to have or to build in ourselves if we otherwise treat confession too carelessly. But if you have a habit like that, then you can embrace that as long as it's not getting in the way. The important thing is to take our confessional habits seriously, to really confront what we've done wrong, to turn ourselves back to the way that God wants us to walk and be back in alignment with Him. And thanksgiving is an attitude that we should always be in. And there's a level at which it's sort of a habit that we operate in through life. We say grace through meals and uh, thank God in our congregational prayers and this sort of regular pattern. But like any other part of spiritual life, if we let it become routine, we've lost the purpose of it. It's something we need to be mindful of and to truly be thankful, not just saying thanks. And when something happens in our life for which we are truly grateful... We can and should take the time to offer that up to God in serious, mindful thanks, deliberately and meaningfully. Whether it came miraculously out of God's hands in a way that we can't explain, or if it's a product of our own work that we recognize comes ultimately from God's uh, giving us the, the ability to live a life where we can strive so freely, then that's something that we need to do. Ultimately, we must give up all our thanks to God for all these blessings. A life lived in thankfulness is often the difference between a secret Christian and one who radiates the gospel in their life. And that's an important difference for us to try and make. Secret Christianity is not the kind we are called to live. And finally, joy. Joy, particularly as a kind of worship in itself. I can't tell you how to be joyful God has put the responses in your heart for things that make you joyful. And you'll have others, uh, you'll have some that are in common with others, some that are your own. Many preachers and writers before me have tried to offer a definition of what joy is, and some may have done it better, but let me be vain enough to try and give you one now. Joy is the profound delight beyond words that comes from being thankful to be alive at a given moment. And it comes when Problems seem too small or far away to affect us, and everything else seems to be where it needs to be. For the people of Israel, they had their city, they had their safety, they had their temple back, they had their covenant with God back. And their enemies were walled off and their families were with them and the new start lay before them. For us, it doesn't mean merely being extremely happy during worship music. Now, that's an excellent thing to have. 
for some, especially the musical worship music itself has a, a quality that sort of vanishes the worries of the world and maximizes closeness to God, and it is indeed their common gateway to joy. For others, and I secretly suspect a lot of others, we sing in worship because we value the tradition, because we like being in concert with other believers, because we're pleased to offer that to God, uh, because it's a righteous way to offer our thanks and our worship to God. But we're not swept up into wordless joy when we are singing, at least not usually. And I want to say this carefully, uh, because I'm not saying that worship must or should be a practice of invoking a certain emotional state to be genuine. Uh, but I am saying that seeking joy is one of the great and powerful consolations of the tragic, sinful state of life. And however it is you find yourself with joy, uh, whether it's in combined worship or uh, delighting in, um, in, a, in a show or a book or something that stirs joy in you, um, or if it's in the kind of, uh, if you yourself are the kind of lunatic that experiences joy in exercise, if you get that runner's high, the joy that you get is a gift from God. And it's a gift that you have an obligation to dedicate back to him because he's the only one worthy for its dedication. Purity as a confession, thanksgiving as a mindfulness, and joy as worship, that's a portrait of a follower of God and when they're doing it right. Let's pray together. Father God, our creator and our redeemer and our constant helper, your people come to you now and we're made pure by the sacrifice of your son on the cross and we thank you for that eternal cleansing. Help us to live lives consistent with the priesthood that we've been called to be. Father, we give you thanks. We thank you for every mundane sunrise and common meal and for those amazing milestones in our lives where we might have been so swept up that we forgot to give you praise. And lastly, Lord, we give you our joy. For you're the one who's responsible for putting it in our hearts and the only one worthy of its value in our lives. Help us to remain pure and thankful and joyful as we represent you in the world, so much so that the nations see us serving you and come to know you as a result. And for any in our number for whom the, uh, the task of religion itself seems to have become a routine or a burden, we pray your spirit gives them a new fire in their heart to restore their relationship with you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.